I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 11, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Last week, Pastor Carl was preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and he highlighted some priorities of our Lord for us. He made it clear that the Lord prioritized healing in his ministry. He prioritized prayer, and he prioritized preaching. And I wanted to take the opportunity to camp on one of those priorities of the Lord, and that is the priority of prayer. Mark 135 tells us something about the pattern of Jesus' own prayer life. Pastor Carl read that Jesus got up early when it was still dark and how he left the house And he would go away to a secluded place and he would pray there. And Carl pointed out that in the Greek, we we can derive that this was an ongoing, uh, a, a long commitment of time being applied to this praying. He was praying there. That's that's one of the wonderful things about the Greek language. It can be very, very precise and detailed. And we saw that Jesus continually prayed over and over, and this was a pattern in his life. That's how Mark described our Lord's prayer life. And I've heard it said so many times, if Jesus made such a priority of prayer, if he regularly committed himself to doing it so much, if he, made such, if he applied so much effort, if he made such a discipline out of it, why, why shouldn't we? If he did it, how much more ought we? If prayer was such an integral part of his daily life, if it was something that he could not, would not go without, how could we as those who are following his examples, as those who are little Christs, how could we not do the same? I think every Christian knows they ought to pray more. I think we can all sympathize with John MacArthur's response when he was asked about his own prayer life that it isn't what it should be. We could all pray more, pray better, pray longer, pray harder, pray with more faithfulness, with a greater fervency, greater depth, but how? How do we pray? How how would God have us pray? And that's Frankly, that's a good question. The disciples asked that Jesus asked that question to Jesus on one occasion, and he answers it in Luke chapter eleven, one to four. He answers their question. Really, he, he's answering their question in the whole of Luke eleven, and in, and in the whole of Matthew six. But in the first four verses, he gives us the content of what our prayers should be concerned about, the content of our prayers. And we will see that our prayers should concern the person of God, the program of God, and the provision of God. The person, the program, and the provision of God should regularly be elements of our prayer. Let's read the text. Luke 11, 1 to 4. 
It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. On the first verse and a half, we see the request. The request to be taught how to pray. And it's molded after his own pattern. As I said, Jesus would often go away to a remote place. We see that throughout the Gospels. He would go to a remote place, very often alone in the twilight hours or perhaps late at night because he he had to. On the occasions that Jesus would be out during the day, we see that the crowds just had to, they seemed to have this knack for finding Jesus. And they would take up hours and hours of his time. And because Jesus is so compassionate, he wouldn't just shove them off. He would give himself to them. I love that verse in Matthew 9:36 when he says that he's going to all the cities and he's healing them and he's, he's teaching them. And he sees the people as sheep. He sees them distressed as if sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them and so he doesn't just shove them off the way the way a parent may shove away you know an annoying child but he gives himself to them he commits himself to them and we see that he didn't have the luxury of downtime jesus didn't have the luxury of of a sabbatical or 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 a break time but he gives himself Readily, He commits himself readily to serving others. And so the norm, the pattern for the Son of God is if he's going to pray, if he's going to spend time in prayer and communion with his Father, the norm for him is to go out and to sacrificially, to sacrifice his time and his energy to do that. And that's the norm. But on this occasion, he's praying in the presence of his disciples. And there's just a, 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 a couple observations, especially if you've read Matthew chapter 6, you will notice that Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, I, I have to confess something. In, in seminary, they hounded us to not call this the Lord's Prayer. I have one pro- professor in, in, in particular, if I call it the Lord's Prayer, the, the hairs on the back of his head just sticks up and he gets a bitter taste in his mouth, I'm sure. So... The Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17 where he is praying. It's a, it's a prayer that no one else can repeat. But this is the disciples' prayer, the, the prayer that the Lord gave to the disciples. And there's a couple reasons why Luke's account of this prayer, of this model or pattern of prayer is different than Matthew. One is that Luke is recording this several months after the teaching, after the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm fully convinced that, like any good teacher, Jesus had to repeat his, his teaching from time to time. Teachers have been 
told that the key to repetition is learning and the key to lear- uh, I'm sorry, the, the key to learning is repetition and repetition is the key to learning. If you say something in multiple times, it tends to come across easier. And so there, there's no reason to think that Jesus only taught his disciples or those who followed him to pray on, on one occasion. Secondly, Luke wrote his gospel sometime well after Matthew's had already been uh, written and disseminated and distributed. And so Luke, it, wouldn't be unne- it would be unnecessary, it would be uh, repetitive for Luke to say everything that Matthew said in his sermon or in, in his account. And third, Luke wrote to a different audience. Luke wrote to a man named Theophilus. That's a, that's a Gentile name. In all likelihood, Theophilus was an official in the Roman government. And what, what, I, have, what I think is that Luke written, wrote Luke Acts as a treatise, as a defense for the Apostle Paul, because Acts ends with Paul in prison. And so there's good reason why Luke's, why, why the, the, the disciples' prayer in Luke is not exactly the same, but when you compare the two, the bones, the frame, is identical. So the Lord's response to teach us to pray, he gives them Three things to consider, three, three hooks to hang their thoughts on, and they are God's person, God's program, and God's provision. And the first one, God's person. There's two things to glean from this. We see that Jesus says, pray this way. When you pray, say what? Father. God is the almighty God. He is the transcendent one. He is the infinite. He is the all-powerful creator of the cosmos. And yet, Jesus teaches his disciples. Address him as Father. Matthew is a little, a little more particular. He says, our Father. And what's remarkable is that Father is not the commonly used way to address God in the Old Testament. There's only about ten verses that, in, that, that suggest or refer to God as, as father or as a father. Several of them, father is used as a simile or a metaphor in ways like, you are like a father to us. So it's not a direct address. But in the New Testament, there are about 165 references to the father. About 60 to 62 are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. Over 100 are in John. So when you get to the New Testament, this idea that God is near and dear to you as a father, it is, it is exploding. It is all over the place. The, 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 the title Father expresses source of life at where you come from, but even better the it is the basis of of intimacy and nearness it is the basis upon which we can we know that we have love from the father that we have that we can hope in the father and you think of 
think of the things that, that you can expect from, from your earthly parents, from your earthly father. You can expect to be loved from your father. You can expect to hope in his ability to provide for you or to guide you or to help you. You can expect to a certain degree that he has resources. You can expect to a certain degree that he will counsel you, that he will teach you. But when you pray, think about the fact that this infinite, transcendent, all-wise, all-powerful, omnipresent God, creator of the universe, has made himself your father. Whatever love you could expect from your earthly father is so much grander from your heavenly father. Roman, Paul says in Romans 8 near the end that absolutely nothing, he, he lists a whole list of stuff that would take me too long to read, but he, Paul says he is convinced nothing will separate you from the love of God which is yours in Christ Jesus. What a love. That's one thing you can think about when, when, we, when, when we are thinking about God as our Father and as we're praying. Be thankful for his love. Another thing is, is hope. Whatever hope you could, you could hope from your Father, how much more can we hope from our Heavenly Father who is always faithful, who is, who is secure, who is the rock His love is greater. His, the hope that we have in him is more sure. The resources at his disposal are infinitely more vast. The counsel and the teaching that our heavenly father gives us is infinitely more wise and sure and righteous than even the most learned of our earthly fathers can give us. Another, well, and one, what we also have to address is that only those who have God as their father can pray this way. Only those who have been given that blessed relationship are entitled to have their prayers heard like this. Those whose souls have not been regenerated by God, those who have not been given eternal life by being united to the Son, they don't have grounds to approach God like us. And just to be clear, that privilege is not something we earn. That is something he graciously gives. You are now his child. He is now your father. And because of that relationship, your heavenly father will always be there for you. And as, as father, his being, his person, his character, his attributes, his qualities are fully employed for your good. This is... Friend, this is not a privilege given to all men, but only those that God has made his own. And if indeed this has happened to you, Christian, glory, glory in the mercy that your Father has shown you. Mercy in the grace that he has given you for nothing that you have given him. It's been a, it is such a gift Glory and thank God for the kindness he has shown you when you were powerless to do anything for him in return. So he is God as Father, but he is also sacred. Look at, look at how Jesus continues. When you pray, say, Father, 
hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Who hears hallowed and thinks that's a weird word? That's an old word, right? Well, the word is the same word that uh, used to make something holy, to make sacred, or to be set apart, to sanctify. It's, it's the, uh, the verb behind the noun saint. So a, a, a saint or a, a Christian or a, a sanctified person is someone who has been hollowed by God. And you, know, you might ask, well, why don't, we, why don't they just put uh, let your name be holy or let your name be sanctified? And I, I kind of like the fact that, that some of the Bibles keep that word hollow because it hollowed itself is a unique, uncommon word which kind of ties into what being set apart actually means. When we read it, we, we stop for just a second and we have to think about what that means. And if it was some other word that we are more familiar with, maybe we would just read over it a little, little quickly without stopping and thinking. So I kind of like the fact that it says hollowed. Hollowed. Let your name be hallowed, or hallowed be your name. On Scripture, God's people, they have hallowed, they have sanctified God's name by, by glorifying it, by blessing it, by praising it, by lifting it up or exalting it. And, and just to be clear, this isn't just his name. It, the name is referencing to his whole person, his, his whole quali- uh, all of his qualities, his attributes, his whole being. And this is a call for the self to begin in worship before one brings forth petitions and requests for the benefit of self. This is, this is a prayer that is God-centered. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness before praying for these things to be added to you. And it's not, you don't have to be creative or original to hallow God's name. You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to be a musician. You don't have to be a painter or a, or a Bach or a, uh, a Mozart to, to do things, to create works that glorify God. All one must do is simply say what is true about God. All you must do is say what is true about God to hallow his name. And that's because there is absolutely nothing like God. I mean, think about that. He is simply incomparable. He is incomparable. There is nothing like him in his being, in his character, in his attributes, in his faithfulness. You, you guys know when, when we're going through the Psalms, I love talking about his faithfulness. There's nothing, no one that can compare to him in his faithfulness. And simply saying what, repeating God's own thoughts and repeating God's own own words after him hallows his name. But there's also an emotional, a, a moral contribution that has to be made because Scripture tells us merely having accurate and orthodox thinking, just just simply having the right theology itself isn't enough to constitute full worship. All you have to do is look at the, the Jews and the Pharisees. They had many right thoughts about God. And what did Jesus say about them? Matthew five fifteen eighteen. These people honor me with their lips, but where are their hearts? 
were they near? No, they were far from God. So in addition to right thinking, there must be faith and belief and trust and confidence to the Holy Father, to the Holy One who has become our Father and who has made us His. I think David captures this thought in Psalm 16, 8 when he says, I have continually set the Lord before my eyes. Every decision he makes, every place he goes, every, every, everything he does is done in the light of the fact that God is everywhere and God is holy and God is with him and God is great. So Jesus is teaching his disciples and, and by extension he's teaching us when we pray, begin with thinking about God's person. He is your father and he is, so, he, so he's, he's near you, but he is sacred and holy. There's n- no one else like him. God's person. And then he says to pray concerning God's program. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your Kingdom come. This word for kingdom is basileon. It's related to the word basilica, which is like a a royal castle. It can mean kingdom, and it can also mean reign or or the rule of a king. And this is a prayer for God's reign to be recognized throughout the world. It's a prayer for God's reign to be recognized exercised and and recognized and felt and received in a world that, as Psalm 2 says, is is currently raging against God. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot a vain thing? The world is currently in a state of grand rebellion and praying your kingdom come is a prayer that God's enemies not, not... Merely that they are not only that they would be crushed and defeated, but also that they would repent and that they would be reconciled. That God's reign would be recognized, that his glory be revealed in the hearts and minds and in the lives of men and women worldwide. Praying your kingdom come means not expecting, not, a, not praying for the exaltation of, of your nation or just another nation of man, but a nation, but a kingdom that's unlike any kingdom that has ever lived. You, got, you, you know how many kingdoms have come and gone in the history of the world? I, mean, there, I heard on the radio the other day there have been about 22 massive empires like Assyria, Babylon, uh, today we would we would consider U.S., Russia, China as these mega empires, but there have been countless nations that have risen and had their day in the sun and have declined and vanished. And Scripture says God sets the rising and falling of each and every one. Pharaoh, King Saul. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus. God's absolute sovereignty is seen in each one of these kingdoms. 
he says to Belshazzar, who's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son in Daniel 5.26, God, Daniel says to the king, God has numbered your kingdom and he's put an end to it. He died that night. God determines their appointed times and boundaries. We see that in Acts 17.26. But unlike all these kingdoms, unlike those nations, no matter how big, no matter how small they were, they all vanished. But what is different about God's kingdom? Does it fade? Does it vanish? Does it diminish like the kingdoms of man? Does it? I'm looking for a yes or a no. No. God's kingdom itself never fades. God's kingdom never vanishes. Not because of its citizens, but because of its king. Praying your kingdom come means that the self has relinquished its desire for rebellious and aggrandizing autonomy. Praying your kingdom come expresses a desire to see God's God rule. And there are two ways that we can look at the kingdom. It's a very vast, very complex uh, subject in the scripture. But to sum it down, I think there's two ways we can look at it. There is a present spiritual aspect to it. And there is a future physical and, well, physical and spiritual. But right now, in the present, the kingdom is largely a spiritual reality. We see in in the scripture that the kingdom was present in in the pages of the New Testament because of the presence of the king. Matthew 12, 28, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Luke 9, 9, Jesus instructs 70 of his disciples to go out and preach to the people and proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you. To the Pharisees, he says in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom is in your midst. And you know, there's, there's that one Pharisee who, who uh, didn't butcher scripture and actually responded to Jesus appropriately. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And why was the kingdom of God so near to this man? Because the king was standing in front of him. The king was standing in front of him, the wielder, the possessor, the executor, the one that Carl read last week had the right to open the scroll in Revelation 5, was standing in front of this man. Now the Jews as a whole, their leaders get the brunt of the blame, but the, really the whole of the Jewish people fail to recognize the presence of the kingdom because the truth is, is his program didn't match their program. His program didn't match their program. He came to save sinners. He came to save the lost and to bring sinners to repentance, to salvation through spiritual reform. What do the people want? Were the people concerned about spiritual things? They wanted physical deliverance from Rome. They wanted a military messiah. They wanted, Jesus was bringing a spiritual kingdom. The the Jews, the people wanted a political kingdom, a military kingdom, an economic kingdom, a, 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 a prosperous 
kingdom. And the kingdom was a reality, and the kingdom was in their midst, but their unbelief blinded their eyes with the, with the effect they couldn't see it. God was standing in front of them. They couldn't see it. And they rejected their king and their kingdom. Jesus took the kingdom away from them. Just because Jesus is not physically on the earth right now doesn't mean that the kingdom of God has ceased to exist. Rather, it's still present where the king is. And you may say, well, Jesus is in heaven. And I say that's true, but the New Testament's clear. What is the reality between every Christian and Christ? We are united to him. Our lives are joined to his. And so the kingdom, in a sense, is present wherever the Christian goes. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3 that we are to, we are to act, that we are to behave as citizens of heaven while we, while we sojourn here, while we are temporarily residing Here, while we are living on the earth physically, but being united to Christ in heaven. And that's why he says in Colossians 3, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he he continues, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear in glory. Mike, did you know that when Christ appears, you will appear in glory? Are you in glory right now? Are you in glory right now? So maybe, maybe you have something to look forward to. I have something to look forward to. Earhart, when Christ appears, you're going to appear in glory with him. Is that good news? So that, 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 is a, that is the present spiritual sense in which we can look at the kingdom. But the fact that we will appear with him in glory also speaks to the fact that there is a future physical and spiritual, but uh, physical aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom will be visual and physical in the millennium and in the eternal state. When Christ comes back to rule, the kingdom will be here and physical and undeniable and tangent and touchable. After, after giving us communion, Jesus drank the wine and he, he says to his disciples, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then in Matthew 25:34 at the final judgment when when believers and unbelievers are being separated like sheep from goats in this big worldwide herd he says Jesus the king triumphant he says to those on his right come you who are blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world Now, there's so much more the scripture says concerning the kingdom that God will, that he will establish 
when he returns, when Christ returns, but especially as you read through Revelation and you hear the prayers of the saints, you see this desire for the kingdom of God to come and be tangible and touchable. You see that becoming a, a greater desire and a more fervently offered up prayer. We are to be praying for God's kingdom to come. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we pray for God's kingdom to come? Well, there are three ways that I can think of. Pray for the kingdom of God to grow as sinners are brought to repentant faith. You can pray for God's kingdom to come by praying evangelistically. Pray for your friends. Pray for your family. Pray for your neighbors who don't know Christ, who don't know his peace, who are still raging, as Psalm 2 says, who are still plotting a vain thing, who are still captivated in their autonomy, who don't know the forgiveness of sins. Pray that they would know that. Pray that they would be reconciled to Christ. You can pray that the kingdom of God be magnified as his grace and righteousness is expressed in the lives of the kingdom's citizens. David reflects this thought in Psalm 119:136 when he says that my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. There is a desire in God's people to see other people walking positively in God's reign, to see them desiring and naturally keeping his law, not keeping their law because they have to, but because they want to. Pray for the sanctification of God's people. Pray for the godliness of God's people. And the third way you can pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray for his kingdom to come. Literally. Did I use literally right in that sense? Yes. Pray for his kingdom to come literally. And as I said, you see that in Revelation becoming a more fervent prayer. How long, O oh Lord? Jesus taught us that this prayer includes worship towards God, which we do by affirming his revealed person, by desiring to see his program in play. Now, these, those first two things, they are alike in that they, they, they seek to glorify God by highlighting his excellence. His person is excellence. When you think about him being your father, when you think about him being sacred and holy and, 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 and uh, distinct and incomparable, there should be an excellence that, that, that just flows through your mind as you think about him, and that, that would prompt you to pray. When you think about his kingdom and when you think about how good it is to be in his reign, to be in his rule, to see his law go forth and be in the hearts of, of people, there's an excellence about that. That is an excellent thought. So those two, those two considerations highlight God's inherent excellence. 
We worship our God because of the excellence of his person. We desire to see him exalted and reign because of the excellence of his rule. But the third element of prayer seeks to glorify God by highlighting his compassion, his grace, his love found in the provision that he gives to his people. God's person, God's program, God's provision for his people. And the first we see is that God is a supplier for his people. Give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, daily bread includes the idea of what you need on a basic level to survive. It's, it's staple, staple things. Food, clothes, shelter, stability. One commentary I read even suggested government. And, and, and that's not too hard to believe because we've read in First Peter chapter 2 how, how God has ordained government for the sake of order and, and, and peace and stability. But these are, these are staples. These are staples. These are basic needs for the perpetuity of life. These are not luxuries. Daily bread are needs. Well, what would praying for daily bread look like? Praying for your job, praying for a job so that you can provide for your family, that you can put literal bread on the table, that you can pay the rent. Praying for daily bread would not be praying for a job because your boss is a jerk. Praying for daily bread would also include being thankful for the job you have, even if your boss is a jerk. Praying for daily bread would be praying for a car or a vehicle so that you can get to that job that God graciously gave you. But praying for daily bread wouldn't be praying for a new car with all the fancy gidgets and widgets and, you know, while you're still paying off the truck and the boat and the motorcycle and the RV. But you really want that new car because it's, it's, it's shiny. It has lots of cool toys in it. That's, that's not praying for daily bread. Praying for daily bread also, also means being thankful for that Ford Pinto you have because it's still running. I actually had a Ford Pinto when I was a kid. It, it felt like a big car at the time. Praying for daily bread means giving thanks for the clothes you have even though you, know, you don't shop at the Nordstrom's, you're shopping at the Value Village or the Ross. The reality for most people who've walked this earth is that they have typically had one or two sets of clothes, and often they had to work daily to be fed daily. They were often subject to famine, to drought, to not having a roof over their heads. They were subjected to weather. And yet David could say in Psalm 37:25, I have been young, and now I am old. And one thing I have never seen is the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. What I want you to see is that Scripture is abundantly clear that this transcendent, holy, omnipotent, awesome God who created everything, who knows the very hairs on your head, that he is sympathetic and provisional 
for the basic needs of even the most humblest of his children. Isn't that a good thought? Isn't that a comforting thought? When you think about God like that, doesn't it become a little easier to pray to him? Doesn't it become a little easier, especially if there have been times where you have been in a crisis and you didn't know how that rent was going to be paid, you didn't know how that bread was going to be put on the table, you didn't know how that uh, shirt was going to get on the kid's back, but it did. And when you remember that, doesn't it make it easier to thank God for your daily bread? Matthew 6, 25 to 33, Jesus is saying to the crowds, Look at the birds of the air that they don't reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Observe the lilies of the, of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, burned tomorrow, thrown into the furnace, how how will he not much more clothe you? And here, here's that stinging rebuke. Oh, you of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles, those who, are, who don't know God? You should know better, but, for, but those who don't know any better, they are eagerly seeking these things. But Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows you need these things. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things that the whole world is eagerly searching for, frantically trying to obtain, stabbing each other in the back, murdering and killing each other for, your heavenly Father will see to it that these things are added to you. He will take care of you. Doesn't that make it easier to thank him for our daily bread? And as I said, some of us have been through these circumstances where we have had no choice but to rely on his grace. And some others, I imagine, have been withheld from these times of crisis. But what my desire is for all of us to now confirm in our hearts and settle it That if God is our Father, He will take care of us. Settle that in your hearts. Your Heavenly Father loves you and will take care of you. So He is the supplier. But what's even better news is He's the Savior. Jesus continues, And forgive us our sins, For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. As bad as starvation could be, as as bad as uh, a drought or famine could be, forgiveness is by far a greater need than food could ever be. Forgiveness is the greatest need for every person who's ever lived. Unforgiven sin is the worst thing that could be upon a person. Unforgiven sin exposes the soul to condemnation and judgment that is utterly, utterly inescapable. Far more than 
a starved man needing bread is a sinner in needing in need of forgiveness. It's the deadly problem that faces all men. Romans three twenty three all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The only cure is forgiveness. It's not merit. The cure is not how much you can do for God. The merit is not an indulgence, as we talked about first hour. The cure is not the good things you do for the church. It's not the good things you do for your neighbor. It's not being baptized. It's not who you know, unless who you know is Jesus Christ and his sweet forgiveness. The good news for every sinner is that God is able, he is willing, and he is greatly desirous to forgive sin. Isn't that what we see in in the Gospels? Jesus, who, who, if you didn't know, he is God. And he's going about, and as he's healing people, as he's interacting with them, it seems to a great many of them, not everyone, especially those who are resistant and, and, and proud against him, but to many, and often to the least expected, he forgives their sins. Jesus forgives their sins. That's the centrality of the gospel. Men are sinners. They desperately need forgiveness. God forgives them their sins through Jesus Christ. And when a sinner confesses their sin and they come to Christ in faith and they believe in him, he, his debt, the wage of his sin is forgiven once and for all. And we, we, we greatly, greatly glory in that. Amen? And yet here we are instructed by Jesus to include as, a, as an element, as a regular element of our prayer life, the request for forgiveness of our sins. So what does that mean? What does it mean if Christians have already been declared forgiven? I would say it includes initially that initial act of, of confession and repentant faith which saves us, but the, it, it, it goes beyond that, and, and the fuller answer extends beyond just our justification. While, sinner, while believers, they are, while we are in good standing with respect to eternity, the truth is we still fail in our practice. Our position is secure. Our practice is improving. We fail in our practice, and when that happens, it's imperative to ask for forgiveness. Not because we lose, not because we could lose our position, but because that is the means by which our practice becomes aligned, uh, mirrors, comes into conformity with our position. A Christian who continues to live like a non-Christian is a contradiction. When that happens... While our relationship with God and others may still be intact, even though I sin, I am still a child of God and I am still a brother to another 
child of God, our relationship is intact, still our fellowship can suffer. The confession of sin and the request for forgiveness is how our fellowship remains in harmony with our relationship with God and fellow Christians. And that's why Jesus provides that second line. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Those who have been forgiven will have a new propensity to forgive. And so praying, forgive us our sins, not only compels us to be introspective of our walk with the Lord and to be humble and to, and to be contrite, to be sensitive when we sin against him, but this prayer compels us to be considerate of fellow believers who we may have sinned against or who may have sinned against us. Praying, forgive us our sins, reminds us that God greatly desires unity between the body, between Christians, and that unsettled beef, unsettled beef between believers hinders worship. It hinders fellowship. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23, 24, if you are at the altar, if you are giving, your, you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you stop what you're doing. You, put your, you leave your gift there and before the altar and you go and first, before you give your worship, you go and be reconciled to your brother. And then you come and serve. Then you come and offer your gift. Pray, praying, forgive us our sins, reminds us of the Hippocratic slave, hip, uh, hypocritic slave who was forgiven this Massive debt of 10,000 talents. A talent is somewhere between 18 to 20 years of labor. It is, it is a simply, un, it, it, it's the way we would say, a, 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 well, no, even today a million bucks isn't that much anymore. Um, it's the way, you know, 20 years ago you, you would say a, a million bucks. Now you might say a, a, a trillion or a billion or a gazillion. Just you're expressing in uncountable, incalculatable. That's how much debt this guy had. 10,000 talents. And he, he's forgiven it. It's just, it's wiped clean. It's unimaginable. And then he goes and he has a slave who owes him maybe a, maybe a, a two days worth of money. Paltry money. Grocery money. And the guy throws him in prison demanding it be paid. Jesus there says the same thing he says in Matthew 6 and here, that those who are forgiven will forgive others. Those who do not forgive others demonstrate that they have not been forgiven. So looking at God's provision, we see that he is the supplier, that he gives us our daily bread, but we have also looked at his salvation. We thank him for saving us. And we express that salvific relationship with him by confessing and repenting of our sins, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and then likewise readily, eagerly, willingly, from the heart, 
forgiving others when they sin against us. The last consideration is, as far as God's provision is concerned is that he provides protection. Oh, this is so important. And lead us not into temptation. Now, that word temptation makes things a little tricky because it, it, ha- it has a range of meaning. It can mean it can mean a uh, it can have a neutral sense about it, a, a, a test or a trial in which you don't you don't know the outcome, and you're trying to find out, uh, you're trying to learn about the nature or the or the character of something. You know, if, if you're a manager and you have to hire someone and you're screening employees or potential employees, and you don't know anything about them, you may give them some aptitude tests because you're looking for the one who has the aptitude or the right character for for a job. And if you're, like in a trial, if you're the judge, hopefully the judge and the jury are impartial and they, they, have, they, they don't have a preconceived uh, opinion about, oh, this guy's guilty, obviously. Hopefully he's impartial and he's neutral until the facts are presented. So uh, a temptation can, can mean a test like that. But then uh, the word, the way the word is usually used in the scripture, it's going back to the trial, or uh, trial, while the judge and the jury are hopefully impartial, the prosecutor, on the other hand, he's trying to make the guy look guilty, right? And so often the way this word is used, it's used with a sense of, of malicious intent, evil intent. It want, it, it, it's a test that wants to see you fail. It's a test that wants you to mess up and fall and to sin. This is someone throwing an obstacle, an, an obstacle in your path so they can watch you fall over it. Now this text at first glance looks troublesome because it would, it would suggest that God himself would, would potentially lead his children into temptation uh, unless they ask him not to. It could suggest that at first glance, but it's not the case because the parallel passage in Matthew 6.13, Matthew provides the fuller sense, lead us not into temptation, but, how's it go? Deliver us from the evil one. That's a common feature in Hebrew writing is parallelism. And Hebrew writers would often take one thought, say it in one way, and then say it, say the same thing either positively or with an inverse negative. And so praying that God would lead us not into temptation is a parallel thought to deliver us from the evil one. This is a, this is a request for aid. This is a, a request, a plea for deliverance, for protection from the one who most certainly, without question, does do the malicious tempting, with the, 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 the harmful intended testing. And that's the devil. If Theophilus, the, the guy that Luke is writing to, if he's read his Old Testament scriptures, he might have become familiar with how the devil was the one responsible for testing Job. But already in, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 4, we see 
the devil presented as the one who was tempting, who was testing, not neutrally, but with a negative, with a harmful, malicious intent. He was testing Jesus in the wilderness. So it's not God, but the devil who leads God's people in the temptation so as to see them fail. And praying, lead us not into temptation, can be rightly interpreted as, don't let the devil successfully lead me to fail. It's not, keep me from this test, it's keep me from failing this test. The prayer is for the one who provides and the one who pardons to also protect Praying, lead us not into temptation, reminds the Christian of his, of his own weakness. Of his own vulnerability. And we live in a world that has so many physical and spiritual threats. I mean, what's the name of the, of the hurricane in Florida? Is that Irma? How many hurricanes, how many earthquakes have, have happened in the last five years alone? There's, there's all these physical threats and there are these spiritual threats that our, our technology, that our medical advancements have caused us to become numb to. And just, just about any need you have, there's a pill for it, there's a cream for it, or there's something you can buy on Amazon and have it delivered to your door in two days that will take care of it. But in the real world, people are vulnerable to sickness and disease and death and disaster, let alone the schemes and the whims of the devil, let alone the schemes and the power and presence of their own sinfulness. We need to be praying this prayer. Praying lead us not into temptation doesn't mean keep me from the hard times. It means keep the hard times from having victory over me. Keep me from, keep my faith from failing when I'm under the pressure. Keep my faith firm when I'm under duress. Keep me from sinning. Keep me from moral failure when I'm in that test. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that God always provides a way of escape. And I loved that I love that verse, and whenever, I would test, whenever I'm tested, I'm looking for that way of escape, and I could never find it. And then I read the rest of the verse that says, with the way of escape, he, uh, he will enable you to endure it. So the, it's not escaping from the test altogether. It's escaping from, the, from sinning in the test. Pray that God would lead you and cause you to endure so that you are not led to sin. And we, we can see that Jesus' prayers were, were rich. We can see that Jesus' prayers were deep. We can see that Jesus' prayers were theological, can't we? But they're also practical. They're also incredibly personal. And ours can be too if we practice at it. It's not a short prayer to simply repeat verbatim. This is a 
list of components of what should comp- comprise the frame of a, of a fullness of a, of a prayer life. And you say, well, Aaron, where do you get that from? And I, I would respond, he, Jesus prayed for long periods of time. Long periods of time. And yet Jesus gives this short prayer. It, it takes, what, 20 seconds to read this? 30, maybe 30 if you're, if, you know, if you're taking your time. 10 seconds if you've, read a, if you've drunk a Red Bull. And yet we know in Matthew 6... Jesus says, don't think that repetition will make God hear your prayers. So, obviously, reading this over and over and over and over and over again, especially if you're on your knees climbing up the Sancra stepped, uh, Scala Sancta in Rome, repeating your prayers over and over and over again is not going to help. So, obviously, the, we can see that these are hooks these are these are points to camp on for our hearts and our minds to stop stop the boat stop the car stop the stop the pinto that God graciously gave you so you can go to your work and camp here and I thought this would be a this would be a little exercise we can do I want to lead you guys in our in our closing prayer and i'm going I want to go through these points. I'm going, to read the, I'm going to read the text, and I want to give you a, a couple moments to pray. And think about what the scriptures say concerning God's person. Think about what does it mean that God is your Father? What is now yours, and what can you look forward to now that God is your Father? And what does it mean to you that God is holy, that he is sacred, that he is hallowed. What does it mean to you that you are now a citizen of his kingdom and that one day we will be revealed in glory in that kingdom? What does it mean to you that we are dependent upon God daily for for our basic needs? What does it mean to you that God has forgiven your sins? And what does it mean to you that that we're still in a world where we're tempted? And that God has presented himself as an able, present guide on how to live and not sin while you're in that temptation. So let's do that. Let's, let's conclude in prayer. And I'll read and I'll give you a few moments. When you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen.